Well, I hope everybody uh, enjoyed the film. Thank you so much for attending and making this part of your day to come see this. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about a couple things. Uh, first of all, the response that we've gotten so far. Um, it's been very positive overall, and that's a great thing. But it's, it's always going to be mixed. Um, because reception, for a project like this, it has a lot to do with perception. When, and the assumptions that people make about the film right off the bat, whether they are the average guy gamers that you know don't understand or get angry that a project like this exists. We've seen you know a lot of people you know resort to slurs you know right off the bat just from seeing this on on their their websites that they get their game news from, or even uh, some queer queer people on Tumblr that have described the film as white tears. I think was one of them and. Uh, those things don't tend to bother me so much. The, the things that, that do bug me about uh, some responses are people that just don't understand, and, or even gay people that are not invested in seeing you know, queer themes in the games that they play. You know, for whatever reason, you know, they have sort of accepted and are really allowing the, that sort of erasure. Maybe they aren't, you know, they don't enjoy these, these sorts of things, you know, queer and... Maybe they don't go to a queer library, or they don't enjoy, you know, gay bars, or maybe not even pride events, um, and these sorts of things. Um, so I do get, I get, I do get frustrated when we see those groups of people who, really, you know, on on the comments on on the press that we've gotten or our YouTube trailers, will use the same arguments that that the film, you know, tries to combat, which is what does sexuality have to do with games? And I feel like the, the three big points that the film makes, uh, that it explores, that the topics are what is a game, why are games important, and why do they impact culture, why are they part, why are they part of society. And I think that, that was a really important thing uh, to get right off the bat. So it's, it's always interesting to see, you know, on a, a feature-length documentary that's trying to explore these things and explain, you know, I feel like it's a really, it's an educational tool. And then um, to see people leaving comments in an article about a film like this, which, which are the same questions that, that the film covers. Um, so, you know, that's a problem. So how do, we, how do we get these people to see the film and have an open mind about that? And one of the ways that we, we tried to open up with this was we did the pay what you want model. Um, we're using a platform called VHX.TV, which is uh, for our digital, you know, digital sales online, at least. Um, and luck would have it that just before we were about to release, they put up a way that you can pay more than the minimum price if you, if you purchase a video. So we were like, okay, you know, we can look at this and we can say, okay, our minimum price is going to be $1. And people can pay as much more as, as they want, you know, however much this is valuable to them. Um, our suggested price is fifteen dollars, but the majority has been one dollar, and that, and that's fine. You know, looking back, it was the correct move because we wanted as many people to see this as possible. We wanted there to be the least amount of hurdles, you know, for people that have to go to to access the message and the story of this film. Um, we were a Kickstarter project, and um, Kickstarter is very interesting because one of one of the pledge rewards was was like $15. If you pledged $15, then you get a free code to, for digital download. And then once we released, you know, um, we were frightened that putting it out there for pay what you want with a minimum of $1, the people that pledged to us uh, $15 would feel like their reward was less valuable. Um, but that didn't happen. And we got a lot of good responses, and people understood why it needed to happen. I mean, anything that's this commercial 
there's not going to be full accessibility. And, you know, that's just the way that it is. But we wanted to make the best effort that we could, you know, for this story to be accessible in a lot of different ways. And, you know, to, we really want to see this film uh, change people's minds. Um, crowdfunding is interesting. I, so Midboss is the company that I work for. Midboss uh, produces and runs GamerX, which is the convention that we talked about. Uh, also, Gaming in Color was a late acquisition. And just now, a section of our team is making the game read-only memories. Um, so for each of those projects, and GamerX2 has now had two, we've run four Kickstarters um, over the course of, of um, the company. I was at GDC this year, and one of the last panels of the show that I attended was run by my friends Samantha Kalman and Zoya Street, and it was about crowdfunding. And one of the things that stuck out to me that Samantha Kalman said is that you don't know the meaning of the word campaign until you run a Kickstarter project. It's, it's a full-time job. And I, I, I recognize that. I was a, I've been a part of two of our Kickstarters. Um, but I think it's even more than that. It's more... You're making a business deal with a thousand different people from all over the world. And now you have deadlines with them. And you have all of their expectations as well. And that continues from the conception of your project all the way through production past release. Right? This is no longer just about you. Um, It, th- yeah, I mean, <laughs> full disclosure, Gaming in Color was very, very close to being a dead project. It was going to end up one of those Kickstarter projects that don't ever see the light of day, that never come out, and people kind of, you know, they disappear. And part of that is because of how difficult running those campaigns are. You know, a, a lot of uncompleted projects are due to that sort of burnout that people experience from getting, you know, the funding to start their process and then the creative the creative beginnings of that um, really wears on them. Um, Midboss was not involved in the conception of the film. It was a couple of friends of ours that you know looped us in um, to these people that had seen you know the press about Gamer X and really wanted to preserve it and wanted to make it you know important and to show off that you know things are happening. People are paying attention to this. This is you know a major scale with a lot of big companies and. You know, even now, you know, the smaller independent creators are being recognized, you know, all in the same space um, for a really good message of diversity and safeness. Um, so thankfully, uh, after, and the people that were originally running Gaming in Color were all professional filmmakers, and they had other opportunities um, that came up that they would rather work on instead of this. So mid-boss, we acquired the film, and I was a mid-boss employee already. I had been working on GamerX before I started Gaming in Color, and this was the project that I was assigned uh, as directed. So it was dead for a long time, and mid-boss sort of saved it. And that's a really bad thing to have happen when you have a kickstarted project, because once your backers perceive at all that this project is not going to come out, they're gone. It's really, really difficult to get their attention again. You know, after they've put in money to something, they feel like they've already lost some, some money you know, or lost their investment in this project because they lost connection with you. Um, so it's, it's continued to be a struggle for us to get our the 1,000 backers that we have to realize that this is a project that's out and you know, it is accessible. Um, our editor and producer, Ryan Paul. Can we, uh, for Ryan, real quickly? Um, you guys have to understand, um, very, very late into the process, we were hilariously underfilmed, and we were not aware of that. And 
so we had all the footage from GamerX and a couple interviews after that. And we're like, okay, so what can we put together here? So we hired our editor, who's Brian Paul, and he does a YouTube series called Gamer.TV. Um, and he's a professional filmmaker and documentarian. We were very, very lucky to have him. Um, and when he, ca- when he came on and he started letting us know, you know, this project was pitched as a feature-length documentary and you guys are not at that stage yet. And we were like, okay, so we're going to have to do more filming. And we didn't have any money. By the time that the GamerX convention was over, the $50,000 that we had raised was gone. And that was a lot of the reason why, you know, the original filmmakers were not intent on continuing the project is because that money disappeared very, very quickly. Um, Ryan Paul took it upon himself to complete four additional interviews that made it into the film, all where he lives in New York, on top of all of the editing and uh, post-production that he took care of completely on his own. He put this entire film together in the span of about under two months, from the beginning of this year to uh, late March. So we were very, very lucky to have him. Also, Too Mellow is the artist that does our soundtrack, which I describe as a sort of elegant chiptune. Um, you can find our main theme on SoundCloud if you search Gaming in Color. <coughs> With all of this in mind, a cast of eight for a documentary like this is much less than we had ever anticipated. It wasn't what we expected or you know, wanted to achieve. But we were very, very fortunate that every one of our, our main cast members is eloquent. And I feel like they're doing some of the best things in LGBT games right now, um, each and every one of them, industry and community-wise. You know, some of them are working for one of the biggest you know, AAA developers in the world right now. And some of them are releasing games individually. Some of them aren't designers. Some of them are journalists. Some of them are community organizers. Um, and having all these sorts of people that are so diverse in occupation and are all doing these things that are spread out and all fighting for diversity at the same time, to have all of their different experiences kind of fall under the same umbrella um, was difficult, but we feel like we, we managed it, and um, that's important. So we are very proud of Gaming in Color. We think that for the people, for you know, even here, doing MIT Game Lab stuff with a closed world, that was very much, you know, intent on being a queer game, you know, people here even understand the sorts of arguments and things you'll see on, on the internet. Um, and that was a lot of the purpose behind this film was to sort of try to be educational and try to, you know, explore these themes and why it's important and why it's um, so valuable. So we think that the film that we've put together has the best shot at explaining to people. And we also wanted it to have um, things that appeal to people that you know, are far, far past, you know, the diversity in games conversation that are, you know, working every day. And we try to, to highlight as many of those people as possible. Um, so I hope that you enjoyed the film. Thank you for coming here today. Uh, you can support the film at GamingInColor.com. And you can also uh, buy tickets to GamerX2, which is in July in San Francisco, at GamerX.com. So thank you so much. Philip and then uh, here and then bring also up Todd Harper, who many of you know is a postdoc with the Game Lab, uh, for some conversation and questions both about the film, but also I don't know how many of you have been following. Um, Todd was quoted in a piece in Salon today on the heels of Nintendo coming out with I think a, a really you know re- regressive statement about how they're thinking about same-sex relationships in their games. So actually, this screening today 
is really timely given this conversation that's happening on the heels of this you know, major corporation putting out the statement. Um, so I thought we could also talk about that, and Todd has done a lot of academic work in this domain. So I thought we could just bring you two up and sure. open the floor up to questions, comments, conversation. And Todd, maybe you can also tell us a little bit about the situation. This this is so. But maybe one would you one one question to kick kick it off with the audience, and then we. Can this ask. is this is so TED Talk. I'm really enjoying this. <laughs> Does anybody have a question that they'd like to start with? Yes. Uh, I feel like a lot of times when I have this conversation with people about um, the progress that's being made, uh, I get this sentiment that a lot of people feel that it's just a matter of time. Five years from now, things will be better, and, and I got a little bit of that at the end of the film as well. And I was wondering kind of what, what would be your report to that, or maybe um, what would you recommend to me as your straight white guy gamer? Like, what can I do to help move the conversation forward so that five years from now is when it's already done instead of when we start seeing other things. Like in that article, um, the title was How Games Are Slowly and Quietly I agree with you. Um, it's, dif- it's difficult because these issues are being paid attention to on a mainstream scale in terms of politics, in terms of you know, gay marriage. You know, everybody knows about that. That's in our presidential debates, right? Um, to sort of include not only gay, but trans and um, all sorts of different queer identities in a video game space. Um, queer people have always been making games, and there's always been a queer gaming community. But only up until now, as things are moving forward, you know, socially and politically, are we starting to see these intersections, you know, with queer and, and video games. Um, to what you said about, you know, just waiting around, I don't think any activism movement that's ever gotten off the ground has been, you know, through being passive or through being, you know, soft. Um, the best thing that you can do, I think, is to support the queer developers that are making games right now and have them for sale you know there's you know support their lives allow them to continue making these things i think that money being placed in the hands of queer developers is just as important today as seeing the representation of queer themes and narratives in video games and to allow these people to exist in an industry you know where maybe they're not at the top of the, the food chain of you know the, the companies if they're only putting things out as, on an individual basis. But I think that you know putting your money where your mouth is in terms of diversity and you know you know tangible support of the people that are actually you know doing the work is probably the best thing that you can do right now. Would you, you have anything to say about that? I do a little bit. Um, I'm going to say something that. He's going to be really tired of me saying by the time he leaves Boston, which is, I turned 36 this year, and this young genius is 19. I know, right? It's the same Hello. reaction. So I wasn't going to tell them, Todd. I needed to tell them. Okay. Because, one, not when I was 19. <laughs> Two, like, I, it is sort of fascinating to me that if you had asked me when I was his age, yeah, do you think you're going to have a same-sex male relationship and a AAA game, role-playing game title in your lifetime? I would have said, no, but here it is, right? So partly I think it's not necessarily about being soft, but generational change is generational change, right? Um, as I said, at, uh, speaking at PAX one year, we just need a lot of old, terrible people to die. 
Um, I don't know that I would say that again. It got a similar laugh, right? Like people were like, I don't, was that funny? Um, I would say that if you were, if you wanted to know what you as the straight white gamer can do, honestly, and maybe this is because I've done work in kind of the esports and competitive gaming space where interaction between competitors socially is where a lot of that toxic behavior happens, is that you cannot, like, and it is a challenge even for me, right, that when it happens, you have to immediately say that it's not okay. And I mean, multiple people said that in the documentary, right? You have to immediately jump on that. I have this habit of when somebody says something, I played League of Legends, when somebody says something that's so gay or calls somebody the or something like that in the game, I sort of immediately kind of identify myself as queer and usually in a mocking way towards that person. Um, and then I screenshot it and I put it on Twitter. Uh, <laughs> and I don't hide people's names. Maybe I should stop doing that practice, actually. But I mean, you know, it's that's a thing I can do, but that's me kind of doing a fighting back situation, right? That's me going like, oh, I can't take this. Coming from another person who they assume to be another straight white male gamer like them who's like, hey, maybe you shouldn't say gay slurs, guy, right? Like, that's huge. Because it goes to creating that environment where it's not okay, which again, a thing that really just got hammered in this documentary that I totally agree with. So it's creating the climate is what you can do as the straight white gamer. Mm -hmm. I think uh, if you use Twitter, Twitter is one of you know the best things that we can do in queer games right now because people have fostered communities and you know help groups on Twitter where they're all you know interconnected <coughs> and um, I think seeing the sorts of support that queer creators give other queer creators um, on Twitter and they share the links you know they back the Kickstarters follow Kickstarter there's a new queer game on Kickstarter every day just yesterday Sean Allen's new game Treachery and Beatdown City got funded which is a great game that looks at different ways of combat in games but also has really great characters that are of color and you know diverse and Sean Allen is someone that's worked for Rockstar and has credits in L.A. Noir and all these big games that's now doing things independently on his own because he can and he's talented and he's making, you know, a statement and he is of color himself and, you know, like, you know, what you said about his talk at, um, at GDC where he gave all these shout-outs to all the creators of color, you know. Um, so if you use Twitter and you follow the, the queer games people that are supporting these things then you will see that and you will have the chance to back their lives you know, Patreon them, give to their Kickstarters, allow them to exist and create, you know, everything that they want to. Uh, what about, so I, I'm not aware of the background of the story you mentioned, yeah. uh, uh, but it seems to me that the corporations have a role here, and somehow <laughs> they seem to be, I don't know, flying above the, uh, <laughs> mm -hmm. they seem to be kind of immune and you know, corporate uh, action against corporations has been, you know, a growing uh, uh, sphere, and I'm wondering if there are things there that uh, we attend to. Yeah, so I work on GamerX. I'm currently the vendor and expo hall head of GamerX, too, so I deal with the sorts of people that are going to be selling all the fun things at our Indie Alley and the expo and all of our big sponsors. So I, I deal with the companies that are getting sponsorship booths and, you know, going to be set up in the expo hall. And through my time working on GamerX2, I've seen a lot of um, conversations that we've began with sorts of AAA developers that 
um, either are not responded to or, you know, if you have the word gay in your email anywhere, then it gets filtered to, you know, somebody far down on the chain and you're not going to make it up, back up that. Um, but the dominant message that we receive is that we are a family-friendly company that makes things that are intended to be fun and we are not in the position to be making social statements or political commentary, um, which by that they mean, you know, <laughs> it's, just, it's just the state of culture in America where anything queer is not family-friendly because of heteronormativity and, you know, the, the dominance that there is there. Um, and we, we saw that, you know, just yesterday with Nintendo's comments about the Tomodachi life, which TL mentioned, which was... Um, I don't know if I have the full story straight, but there was an instance where characters in the game were allowed to marry and have relationships with either or you know two of the, the sexes and genders that were in the game. Um, and that was classified as a bug, and that was removed. And whether that was a bug or not, I'm not sure. But that came along with people being like, you know, why is this something that you guys removed that was allowed? And the press release that came out with that said that exact same thing, that we're not, we were not trying to make social commentary and we want our games to be fun. Somehow, gay people aren't any fun. <laughs> gay people don't play video games. Gay people are not you know, deserving of the time and energy to you know, have a voice in these games. And it's, it's more typical for companies like Nintendo that you know, f- focus on children's games. Um. I can, I'll just read you one other line that's, I think, pro- profoundly troubling, where Nintendo said, the relationship options in the game represent a playful alternate world rather than a real-life simulator. So, well, I'm gay, and my real life has, <laughs> has been basically that, you know? That's not a playful alternate world for me. A playful alternate world is what we talked about in, in the film. You know, you can do anything you want to do. You can be anything you want to be <laughs> with an asterisk. <laughs> I'm plenty whimsical, damn it. Um, I think if I could piggyback off that, of course. I think a lot of harm has been caused to gaming as a medium, digital gaming as a medium, well, I mean, even non-digital mm-hmm. gaming as a medium, at least in the U.S., by the constant perception that games are a children's activity. Uh, in the sense that that was really behind Nintendo's policy of complete erasure of, of anything even remotely controversial in the old NES era, right? When they sort of, I mean, in a way, historically, Nintendo rolled over the bodies of the Atari 2600 and sort of renewed the console market in the United States, right? They also had a really aggressive... If you want to sell games for your product, we need to, you know, you need our Nintendo seal of quality, which I'm not, is not metaphorical. There was a literal Nintendo seal of quality on stuff, right? Uh, so this perception that, that, that you have to remove controversy from content is, has done lasting harm. And part of Nintendo's problem, other than, you know, a, what I would call a specific program of excluding controversy, uh, because we're very controversial, extremely, <laughs> very. Um, part of the problem is that Nintendo's brand subsists entirely on being separate from the hardcore gamer space that they talked about at the very beginning of the documentary, right? Nintendo is for families. Nintendo is for kids. And I apparently hate both of those. I don't, yeah. What are your feelings on families and children? God, I don't ever want to have a family. That's not Never. what gay marriage is about. Yeah, right? But it, it, it's about 
removing anything that's vaguely politicized from this sort of alternate reality fun space where troubles don't exist and everything is fine and happy for the people that are privileged enough to be fine and happy. Um, I think that one of the best parts of the documentary that people didn't really expect us to talk about was, you know, the geek culture and the sorts of stigmas that are involved there and the gamer stereotype. And I feel like that was really important for us to touch on because that gamer stereotype, whether it's true or not, is the rhetoric that companies revolve around and that is the identity of a person that games are catered to. Right? And if we can expand that, if we can explore that more, and to say, you know, I'm a gamer, I've been playing games all my life, but these sorts of things that you're saying should appeal to me aren't. And, you know, this is not me. If we can widen, you know, the sorts of definitions of gamer, then I think that we will see companies start to make their games for different types of people. Well, I wonder... If you produce a game with homosexual content and submit that to ESRB, could you still get an E? And yeah. what's the opinion of the big platform like Steam? Do they accept gay games? Steam publishes Christine Love, so I'm going to say yes. Yes. Because <laughs> uh, her games are full of queers. Mm-hmm. On purpose. I mean, if you ask Christine Love, she's like, "Yeah, I fill my games with queers because I want to see them represented." And so I don't. I I would say I, I don't know. I cannot think of a single game with explicit queer content that has not had something else in it that would disqualify it from an yeah. That's ESRB. that's an interesting conversation. Is how you know Nintendo might not. Oh, Hello. What game? Tulip? Tulip. Did it get an E? Interesting. So now, now we just need to find out if there's, if there's queer kissing. The Sims. That's oh, a good yeah, example. Good I think Sims... Is Sims an E? I want to say that Sims is T. I'm going to say... I think because you can have romantic slash pseudo-sexual I mean, there's Sims, right? But I'm going to look while he talks. Oh, it is T. Fastest phone in the West. I was wondering, could you comment on another gatekeeper of today, like Apple? Yeah. There have been a lot of controversies, but I should shut up. You're the guest. For, for like, the app market, and yeah, yeah. if they allow their sorts... I mean, the app market has tons of things that are, you know... You have to say, I'm 17 years or older to download this. You know, that's not a problem, whether it's a gay dating app or it's some kind of you know, sexual game, like mini gay boyfriend, like I'm sure some people have heard of that, you know, it's fine, you know, it's a, it's a little, it's something gay, it's something that fits in your pocket, and it's a little game that you can play every day, but it's, it's not like, you know, really exploring like a queer identity in a game narrative, which I think is, you know, much more valid um, in, in terms of now, in terms of, you know, seeing representation and people feeling more at home when they play a game. Um, There's that Walmart E. If you're familiar with that concept, it's a game, it's kind of a AAA publishing deal where, and it happens with film too, right? Where you could, uh, and they, they kind of skirt around this in the documentary, this film's not yet rated, right? Where a film can get an R rating, but if it doesn't meet the sort of standards where Walmart would sell it, since Walmart is actually, I think, the nation's biggest vendor, not just of video games, but of um, 
any sort of digital media that's actually a physical media now, right? Um, I imagine that's a gatekeeper, right? And it's it's definitely relevant to Nintendo's completely bunk. <laughs> I'm biased completely, but like Nintendo's stance, that family friendly thing, is totally related to the, the Walmart e, right? That there's this additional level of we not just have to get it past the ESRB, like you mentioned. We also have to get it to retailers who are comfortable selling the content. And Walmart is one of those companies that has a we're a family friendly. Uh, retailer, right? Did Gone Home get rated E? Oh, that's good. I want to say that it did. And Gone Home is all about a lesbian, all about a lesbian romance. And I was just looking for the rating and I couldn't find it. Couldn't find it? Maybe, ER, maybe ESRB didn't even cover Gone Home. It's optional, just like the MPAA. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I feel like anybody that is really invested in putting a positive queer character in their game is not going to feel like getting a teen or mature rating is too much of a hurdle. I understand that in a children's game that's going to be much more difficult to have happen, but I think that queer people have been playing Nintendo games forever, and we love Nintendo games. There's something about them that's a little more unique and a little more playful, and you know, if we can combine those sorts of ideas with queer identities, you know, I feel like that shouldn't be too much of a bridge to gap, right? Ideally. Ideally. At some point, you, you think that, for example, Nintendo or these big corporations, mm -hmm. corporations try to avoid more than just focused on avoiding the, the queer or the gay, mm -hmm. or the gay thing in particular, avoiding any com com complex political contest. Yeah. Because, I don't know, at some point it's very interesting what they say in the documentary or what they show, it's what they show it's uh, a comment that says video games will never be art because it yeah. doesn't touch the the lands of the art, yeah. you know, like the complex situations of the world. And why will my question is, well, do you think that's not going to happen because they avoid the politics in general? I think it will. I mean, it's just like in America right now. If you if you look at politics and you look at like what makes you a, a liberal or a conservative or a Republican or Democrat, you know, the, the, some of the questions will be like, are you for abortion or, you know, are, are you for women's rights or are you for gay marriage? And they're all kind of lumped into the same thing. So I think for from the outside looking in, it's like, we're not going to include abortion in our Tomodachi Life game, so we're not going to include gay relationships. You know, it's, it kind of fits the same thing, I suppose. But um, I don't know, big companies are dipping their toes in, and I think my favorite example of that is The Last of Us that came out last year. You know, not only in the main game did we have the character Bill, who was not explicitly gay, it was left up to the interpretation, but it was heavily implied, and GayGamer.net is a really great resource for um, gay and queer, you know, uh, gaming happenings, and they had an interview with the creative director of that game, and he's like, yeah, Bill was gay. Like, This is something that we focused on, and we really wanted to make this positive. We didn't want to be, you know, so all of these different games that have, you know, queer characters that are portrayed in a really negative light or a really offensive light, stereotypical sorts of things, and um, or even just outright hatred. Like, the, the worst example in the world that happened the same year as The Last of Us is Grand Theft Auto V. And the transgender characters that that game features were just like blaringly in your face like this is hatred and I was disgusted it's pretty gross they're also targets of violence so yeah way to make it especially gross right yes I'm wondering if uh, uh, 
organizations like GamerX um, have uh, like a rating system where they rate uh, games uh, for diversity friendly that sort of thing? Is there is there because I, I I heard through the interviews and so forth a lot of questions about you know what games are uh, safe and what games yeah. are you know is there some sort of uh, you know so. GayGamer.net is run by our friends, um, and we are, you know, doing cool things with them, and that'll continue for a couple months. And they do reviews of games, and they pay attention, you know, any time that a game we know that it has anything queer in it or anything diverse, you know, it'll be on that website. It'll also be pushed on our social media. Like we have a, you know, a good following on our Facebook and Twitter, and you know, we want to let people know, you know, what to support. You know, we want to be looking for these things that when they happen, and to be like, hey, you know, there's this really cool game coming out. And the developers are really great because blah, blah, blah. Or this character is really great because blah, blah, blah. So um, for a convention, it's not so much that you know, we're about you know, marketing a game so much. But we do want not only our communities to feel safe and have fun at our convention, but to feel like, the, like what we're doing is making an impact on the games that they play. And when they can go to Walmart and see on the shelves what kinds of games there are available. And you know, maybe GamerX had a hand in, in this developer, you know, realizing that, you know, gay gamers exist and should be included. Um, Glad has inconsistently but occasionally involved their Media Watch people, uh, but that tends to be, uh, oh, this awful thing is here that you should completely avoid, right? Like, it's, it's almost entirely a, oh, hey, there's a really awful set of trans characters that are victims of violence and so that's sort of the media watch dog thing I think if in terms of here's things that you should really pay attention to it's mm-hmm. almost exactly like like Philip said it all comes grassroots through through social networks right of, of people who are watching out for each other mm-hmm. yeah it's like a, it's a cycle of like positive really really positive and then really really negative and we kind of have to be you know arbiters of both of those conversations at the same time so I saw you raise your hand yeah uh, yeah uh, I just wanted to thank you Thank you so much. Um, I I guess I had a question about the way that uh, gay gamers relate to sort of straight games, and I wanted to sort of frame it by making comparisons to like older media. I guess I guess in you know in film and television before there was a whole lot of gay representation or explicit gay representation. um, You know, uh, gay viewers would often. sort of find gay relationships in the subtext. Yeah. I guess. I'm thinking about like, you know, Kirk and Spock and, and Star Trek or things like that. Mm-hmm. So are there ways in which gay gamers like find gay subtext in straight games or play gay, uh, straight games in gay ways? Or are there like gay hacks of straight games? Um, like these are all things I'm like really <laughs> I don't, know if, I don't know if everything that they've done, <laughs> everything, everything. everything that has been done to film, TV, radio, books, whatever. Oh, they do it to video games. Awesome. Yeah. Trust me. Yes, we are fully in support of homosexual fan fiction. I just want to let that know. No, um, Ringing endorsement. Yes. Uh, I don't know so much about hacks, but I mean, always subtext. I mean, always. Like, I can't think of a great example off the top of my head, but I know that like any kind of games that have like really positive, you know, same-sex friendships or partnerships, you know, through the business or the activities of the games, you know, people are going to make these kinds of connections between the characters that maybe make them uncomfortable on some level. But what you said about other types of media is something that I, I 
bring up a lot because um, it's important to know that not everybody that's gay that plays games is so invested in seeing you know these sorts of things for whatever reason you know whether they don't follow queer cinema or they don't go to a gay library and they don't include this sort of part of their identity which is their sexuality and a lot of things that they enjoy in terms of media but I think that so many more people are and they're including something that is so much a part of culture because games are culture and so much a part of their daily entertainment and activities is something that they don't feel should be too far removed from their real lives because games are representative of real lives on so many different you know, instances. And this, the sorts of more progressive narratives that are coming out of games, you know, even if it is a zombie game you know, about survival. You know, the Last of Us had a lot of really great interpersonal exchanges in that game, which was a lot of technology moving forward with their motion capture and their facial recognitions and you know, the, the sorts of cutscenes that they have. And just really good game design. Like, gay, gay people love good game design. And you know, realizing that, I've started to look at game design more and seeing just like, the heteronormative ways that like, even textless game design the sorts of things that they can still push. I feel like the queer games movement is like, has been really perceptive of that, and they actively try to change that. And I think that that's a very distinct community, and this is not a documentary about the queer games movement. I would love to do one. Um, but they, are, they have a presence here, and I think that it's really important to be able to put them in sort of the same category as you know, people that are looking for representation, people that are creating it, and trying to queer games and change the way that we think about games uh, on a lot of different, a lot of different ways. Um, I was thinking about Second Life and how the LGBT and queer communities really appropriated a lot of space there and how um, they became uh, almost the norm in some environments. Mm -hmm. And also that the, the representations of their community uh, is a bit stereotypical sometimes. And I was wondering if there's a risk, a danger of uh, putting like stereotypical representations of homosexuality in games. If you saw this if you, in some games, like yes, there are there's a representation for homosexuality, but it's stereotypical, it's very cliche, so it's yeah. more harmful than useful. Yeah, we've seen that a lot of times. I mean, um, I'm not an MMO player, but a good example of you know gay themes sort of being tacked on as a, an afterthought is the Star Wars The Old Republic which had that whole controversy of we're going to have relationships in this game oh we should add gay relationships let's put every gay person on one planet and we're going to make this the gay planet and if you want to have a gay relationship you got to go to this planet but you don't exist in that relationship anywhere else in the game right um, and I think you know Second Life is a good example lots of MMO communities and you know or even just like social kinds of interactive games, you know, that Second Life is, it's a very kind of interesting sorts of, sorts of game spaces that people are really given the, you know, the creativity to sorts of create their own spaces and the agency to like foster the communities and get themselves involved in the space where you're allowed to do a lot of different things, right? Um, I've talked to people that run MMO guilds that are gay friendly, that have issues there that a lot of the gay-friendly guilds will be run by a lot of white gay men and women that fetishize gay men. 
and that's about it. So if it's an LGBT group, it might just be, you know, just gay men and, you know, anybody else that's like, hey, I'm queer, I'm quilt bag, or I'm GSM, and I want to be a part of this group may not have, you know, so much representation right off the bat. But, you know, so I think that there needs to be a lot of, you know, accountability for that and to people to not be taking, you know, the sorts of privileges that gay people have over other queer people just because they're more accepted than others and, you know, sorts of, like, pull them up along with you. Like, hey, these are my buddies, you know, they exist in this space too. And then along with that, what you said about stereotypical... Did you play the Ballad of Gay Tony? Yeah. yeah. I didn't either. I've never played a GTA game in my life. I don't apologize. So... Um, <laughs> But yeah, I mean, stereotypical... What's a good example of a stereotypical gay character that was offensive? Oh, I've already got a canned answer. Go for it. There's a, I'm going to give this to you right now. There's a forbidden list of characters talking about transgender representation. Oh, God. Games. Never bring up Birdo. Never bring up Poison. And if you know who I'm talking about, never bring up Bridget. Uh, these are... The problem, I think, is not necessarily a stereotype. Maybe this is because I'm old and cranky, but if I have to pick between nothing and a stereotype, I'll take the stereotype because the stereotype is redeemable often, right? The problem is becomes is when the stereotype becomes the emblem, and then the straight world trots out the emblem as, oh, but they're in games. Look, right? Birdo. This is how, do I, how do I even start describing this problem? Birdo is a bipedal lizard that spits eggs from a Mario game. But it wears a bow and its hair, and it's pink. And the instruction manual said that... It in the Japanese it, version. In the Japanese version. Didn't make it to the U.S. That it, it actually thinks it's a girl and prefers to be called Birdetta. Right? People, I'm not even kidding, trot this out as an example of good transgender representation in video games. It All the time. All the time. Constantly. It makes me want to headbutt a wall until I shatter. <laughs> I just... <laughs> Poison is another example. Poison is a character from Capcom's kind of... Street Fighter Final Fight list of games. They're all brawlers or fighting games, right? Poison is a character who is kind of a kind of a traditionally attractive, scantily clad, buxom woman, right? Um, when Final Fight came to the United States, hilariously, when it came to home consoles, e.g., Nintendo's Super Nintendo system, um, beating up women because it was all male playable characters in that game. Beating up women was not acceptable. And so there's this sort of network of apocryphal stories about how Capcom turned her into um, the Japanese slang is new half. Um, basically somewhere between a transgender character and a transvestite. Every, there's about a bajillion conflicting stories. Feel free to look up her Wikipedia entry to get all of them. Long story short, it's never addressed in any game that Poison is in. It is not ever addressed in the narrative or the gameplay of the games. It's all metatextual. But people will constantly say, oh, but Poison. There's transgender characters in games. And again, it's just, oh. And even more than that, even if it's not something that is canonically transgender or that transgender word is even used, look at a game like Dual Destiny's Ace Attorney Phoenix Wright, the new one. In the third case, there is a character. And there's this sort of... There's a sort of trope that still exists in games that is becoming more and more harmful as people have become aware of transgender, where there's a character and it's a, a mystery game, and the real the reveal is he is really a she. 
and then it comes, you know, it comes out as like, oh, finally, I get to be who I really am, which is my cisgender identity, and it's not a trans character, but it was someone that was a cisgender character that was portraying themselves as the opposite sex, and then it comes out, oh, I'm finally allowed to be myself, and you know, you can make the argument that that character isn't transgender, but that writing is transphobic. There's, it doesn't have to, you know, it doesn't have to be Grand Theft Auto where the transgender characters, you know, the, your your player character walks up to them and throws out transphobic slurs against your will just on their own. It doesn't have to be that to be transphobic writing. It's a lot about ignorance and it's a lot about something being derogatory and something that this is the joke or this is, you know, this is funny, right? And that can be just as harmful. Yeah, uh, sure. Really quickly, to go back to the um, uh, other older media's cycles prior to this. So the film mentions gaming's in its 51st year, and let's take cinema. Like, so 51st year of cinema's in and around late 50s, early 60s, and you've got you know Hitchcock's Rope and and uh, all of uh, Vincent Minnelli, Vincent Minnelli's films, and all of this. In the mode of production, there was just a lot of you know friends of Dorothy doing a lot of in, um, intervention on the mode of production so that, that there's, I would argue there's as many gay classics from that period as Brokeback Mountain is an overt gay cinema, right? Mm-hmm. So, being 44, I just grapple with whether you guys have this huge opportunity to do like brilliantly subtextually coded AAA games mm-hmm. where there's the wink wink, like there's still gay masterpieces that aren't officially gay I feel like it's, it's potentially a missed opportunity. I'm, I'm grieving the coded phase that we've seen them come out of as a, as a gay community. You know, I, I love all that canon. And, and that that might sound like flinching on taking the bull by the horns and getting overt narrative. But I think there's some middle ground there. And so my question then becomes, because I don't know, what is, what is the Wizard of Oz of Game, game. What's the what's the, the coded classic? Like they mentioned, it might be Portal. In the you know, what's the one that when everyone got together at Gamer X, you guys all everyone realized like, wow, that person had the same subtextual response I had to that game, and it's a huge part of my life. God, probably a Final Fantasy game. There's a lot of a lot of very pretty men. <laughs> a lot. It could be that. What do you think? It could be people that believe that Persona is a progressive series. Yeah. Persona 4 features, I haven't played it myself. I believe it's another one of those examples of like he is really a she or like I'm allowed to be my true self, which is cisgender, even though I've been portraying myself as the opposite with their character Kanji. And then, or is that Naoto? Naoto is more of the trans narrative. Kanji is kind of a combination gender gender identity slash sexual okay. identity. Either way, that game has a lot of problems in the way that it presents those characters. Um, I think that some people still found something positive in there, and if they did, then that's fine. Um, I'm trying to think. Like, I feel like so many of like the, 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 the queer independent creators right now, because they're using you know, independent tools and making games all on their own, their games sort of like taken the style of like really old, even like Atari, like general games, you know, and they kind of have those same sorts of aesthetics 
and are still pushing like queer themes and just different ways to play games. Um, I think there's two things that are actually working against us having that same thing in games that was in cinema. One, 30, 40 years later, right? So there's been actual progressive social change that's working in the background in that whole time. Two, the game development industry is overwhelmingly straight, white, uh, cisgendered, heterosexual men. It is is not even remotely as diverse as the film industry was, even in the 50s, right? So there's nobody to code in the narratives. Uh, they're, they're just not there. I'm not saying that there are no queer people in the industry. We actually saw some on the screen, right? Uh, but they're just like, they're just, they weren't there to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and thirdly, I think uh, what Philip just said, there's this huge, like, and I mentioned this in the salon piece that um, TL talked about, DIY kind of freely available, easily accessible game creation tools have been at the forefront of this kind of queer games renaissance that is going on at the moment. And the deal is that many of those people have been forced to subsume their identity for a very long time, and now that they can make games, they are not even going to be even a hint of subtle. They are going to break the door down and set things on fire. But and so I feel like we've kind of skipped over that, that, that covert, coded phase. But best example of subtext in modern games, Lim. Yes. The pixels are political. And if you don't know, Lim is an independent game made by Merit Kopis, who that's probably what she's best known for. She also made Hug Punks, which was featured. Um, this is a game where you are a pixel, and you are navigating a pixel track. And this is your course that you follow. And it's very thin at the beginning, and then you go into a room, and there are other pixels there. Well, these, pu- these pixels are a different color than you. And if you try to pass through this room... <laughs> Your progress is blocked by these other pixels that seem to take offense at your existence. They literally attack you. They dive at you. And there's one control in the game besides movement, which is the blend-in control. And what you do is you become their color. Just for a short time, just to continue progressing, as you become the color of these pixels, and then they start to leave you alone. But at the same time... Your experience playing the game becomes a lot more complicated the longer that you use this function to get past these long open rooms that are like a maze with all these different um, attacking, you know, alternate identity pixels. And the screen zooms in, and there's a very loud noise, and the camera shakes around, and you move very, very slowly. It's agonizing. And I think that the attention that Lim got as being representative of a queer identity that's trying to fit in and also to be yourself, um, it was hugely profound, but it was all subtext because you were able to apply that sort of game to your own experience, whether you're queer or not, but it was, it was absolutely a queer game, and that's what it was intended to be about. So yeah, extended metaphor for passing, right? Yeah, but completely devoid of any overt markers. So yeah, no good example. Thanks very much. Uh, thanks very much for, for bringing the film.